Last summer, I participated in a discussion where the question was asked, if you uh, were stranded on a desert island, sorry, was not desert, deserted island, hopefully it's not desert, die of lack of water, a deserted island and only have uh, two books of the Bible with you, uh, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, which books would you choose? Now, it's kind of a silly question, of course. Um, if you're stranded on a deserted island, you usually don't plan ahead. Um, um, and also, that's not the way the Bible actually works, right? Um, and certainly not the way it's intended to work, at least, i.e. only reading one book of each um, portion of it in isolation of the others. The Bible works as a cohesive whole, but still, I thought about it for a few minutes. Uh, for the New Testament, I knew um, pretty quickly I had to choose one of the Gospels. Um, I had to have the story of our Lord um, with me on that deserted island. And uh, my favorite gospel for a whole host of reasons has always been John. I love the other gospels, of course, but, um, but John has always been especially dear. Um, but when I came to the Old Testament, it wasn't even really much of a discussion or, or, or you know, deliberation. Uh, and there's more books in the Old Testament. You'd think it'd be more complicated. But the one book, friends, that I would take to me on a deserted island from the Old Testament would have to be the Psalms. Have to be. Martin Luther famously called the Psalms the Bible in miniature form, by which he meant that the Psalms include, in essence, everything that the Bible includes, everything that the Bible teaches. That's all there in the Psalter, and that is most certainly true. And of course, it is also true but that the, the Psalms teach us to pray as God uh, would have us pray, with, with boldness, with fervor with unabashed confidence in his love and power for all things that come into our lives. But for me, um, the Psalms are more than that, more than just those things. Because the Psalms actually teach us, I think, in a way that is pretty unique in the scriptures, what it is to be human, what it is to be a human person and even more specifically than that, what it means to be a human person in relationship to the living God, to the God who created us. What it means to, to converse with him, what it means to uh, be in relationship to him, what it means to trust in him, what it means to receive his love. You see, friends, at the heart of the reason for your existence is that you would glorify God and enjoy Him. Enjoy Him. Enjoy Him, friends, forever. Which means that at the heart of the Christian faith is an irreducibly personal and emotional relationship between you and the living God. And, and nowhere, I don't think, is that personal, emotional connection between the human soul and the God who made us revealed anywhere more clearly than in the Psalms. And not just the Psalms that we gravitate towards, not just in Psalm 23 or 100 or any of the others, 19, 8, that might be precious to us. No, in all of the Psalms, in their variety, and their different perspectives, and their different situations, all of the Psalms are necessary to teach us what it means to be human in relationship to God. Because the Psalms teach us what it means to love God. 
They demonstrate that for us. They teach us what it means to fear God and to tremble before Him. What it means to cry out to God in pain or anger or confusion. What it means to thank God. What it means to praise God. What it means to trust God. What it means to rest our restless hearts in Him. And friends, for all these reasons and many more, we're going to return this summer um, to our normal practice that we've had for a number of years now of preaching consecutively through the Psalter, picking up this morning in Psalm 54. We're over a third of the way there. I invite you, friends, now to listen carefully to God's holy and inerrant word. As it comes to us this morning from Psalm 54, um, a psalm that is printed for you in the back of your order of worship. And before I read it, just a a quick comment. Um, You'll notice in this psalm um, that there is um, an introduction to it. Um, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? You may have wondered at times about what that those kinds of introductions mean or are, or how they relate to the rest of the psalm. You see them, of course, um, somewhat frequently in the Psalter. Um, what I want you to know and be confident about is that these introductions that you read here, um, they're not inserted by the the you know the writer or the the translators of the ESV or whoever put the um, the Bible together as some of the you know obviously the topical sort of descriptions of each chapter or each psalm. Obviously, those are not put there by the Spirit. They're put there by men. Um, But these introductions to each psalm are different. Um, They're in the original Hebrew manuscripts. Um, They were there. Um, They were put there by the Spirit. Um, They are part of the inspired text. Of course, sometimes we don't know um, all of what the introductions mean. We don't know exactly what a mascal is, of course. It's probably some kind of musical or liturgical term, um, perhaps a literary term, um, but often these introductions do give us important information um, that we should take to heart when we read the psalm, and it's information that the Spirit wanted us to have so we can treat it as inspired and true and inerrant and trustworthy. Listen now to God's word from Psalm 54. To the choir master, With stringed instruments, a mascal of David. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name, and vindicate me by your might. O God, give ear to my, I'm sorry, O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies, and your faithfulness put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, or O Yahweh. For it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. 
Thus far, the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to you, friend, because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now this morning to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest these words that we may embrace and hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray it in his name and by his spirit. Amen. The context of Psalm 54 is crucial, of course, for rightly understanding it. And we heard already this morning a portion of the story that forms the context of this psalm in our first Old Testament reading from 1 Samuel. Um, David, um, at this point in his life, um, when this psalm was written, has been exiled from the court of Saul, the king of Israel. Uh, Not too long ago, David was the most celebrated warrior in Israel, not too long before this psalm. He, He had, of course, famously defeated the Philistines by killing Goliath in open battle when no one else would face him. He had married uh, Michal, the daughter of Israel's king, become the king's son-in-law. He had entered into a covenant with Jonathan, the the king's son, and presumed prince and heir of the kingdom. Um, He had begun to command the armies of Israel uh, with great effect in the field, with great success against the enemies of, of the people. But all of those things changed when Saul, the king of Israel, under the influence of an evil spirit, began to suspect that David did not have good intentions for him or his family. Rather, that David intended to take the throne for himself with violence. On the face of it, this wasn't a completely irrational fear for Saul. Um, David had become, it seems, more popular with the people of Israel than Saul himself was. Saul was not a particularly good or successful king. And David had a lot of success. He was younger than Saul. He was strong, stronger than Saul. He fought in the front lines um, of the battle while Saul uh, ruled from the back. David had gained the trust of Israel's military leaders in their respect. He had even made deep relational connections within Saul's own family. It was a situation that was ripe for tension and for danger. And Saul was unable to resist the temptation that David's presence presented to him. He was unable to trust that David was faithful, his faithful servant, that he would never take the kingdom by force. And he decided that in order to be happy and content and secure, he decided David had to die. Not only go away, not only leave his court, but David had to die. That's what Saul decided. So David ran. It's remarkable, actually, to see this. He didn't start a civil war in response to uh, Saul's threats against him. He didn't organize a military coup, even though he could have. He just left Saul's house and went into hiding. This is an important part of the story. Because, friends, things could have gone very differently here. They usually do in the course of human history when powerful men quarrel. 
David could have resisted Saul's machinations with force and fulfilled the paranoia that Saul had by seeking to claim the throne that, remember, had been promised to him by Samuel. And thus, by God himself, he could have reached out and claimed that throne for himself through violence. Surely, he might have been able to try to justify it, given what Saul intended to do to him. But David does the righteous thing in the situation that the Lord puts him in, which is to run. That's what David did. He righteously runs away and hides and waits patiently for the Lord to vindicate him and keep his promises and be faithful. In 1 Samuel 23, shortly after David has departed from Saul's court, and David is now hiding in the wilderness of Judah with a group of followers that have come around him. And he hears that a nearby town, Keilah, is being attacked by the Philistines. At the, the Lord's instruction, he goes and takes his men. He defeats the Philistines and then goes back into the wilderness to hide. Now, you would think that the Ziphites, by these actions, the, the people who inhabited the land where David was hiding, would be positively disposed uh, toward him. They, like David, were part of the tribe of Judah. Saul was not part of the tribe of Judah. They were David's kinsmen. Uh, many of them had probably cheered his previous victories, fighting for Israel. Some of them were likely even there the day that he defeated Goliath. And they had just witnessed David risking his own life to protect one of their own towns again from the Philistines. But 1 Samuel 23 tells us of the response of the Ziphites to David's kindness. We read, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us? In the strongholds of Horesh, on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon, now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire, to come down. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. The Ziphites assessed the situation. They measured up the odds and they decided, based on the prevailing political winds, to betray David to his, own, to, rather, to his greatest enemy. Notice that, that Saul doesn't start this conversation. No, the, the Ziphites go on their own initiative to Saul. They travel uh, some distance to Gibeah, and they not only tell, David, or tell Saul that David is hiding in their country, they tell him with exacting specificity where David is hiding. And they don't just do that, they also go beyond that. They offer to surrender David into the, his hands. Although the Ziphites' plan was ultimately unsuccessful, as we read later in that same chapter, the parallels between their betrayal of David and Judas's betrayal of our Lord are deeply striking. It is yet one more way that David prefigures what it means to be the messianic king. And in response to this situation, David writes Psalm 54. He writes it when he was told that the Ziphites had gone up and betrayed him to Saul. And he begins it like this. Verses 1 to 3, he says, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. 
O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. That's how David starts his prayer. Save me, David says. Vindicate me. Hear my prayer. Give ear to my words. Notice that David doesn't spend any time working up to what he wants and needs from God. He doesn't save his petitions for the end. He doesn't butter up God before he tips his hand. He doesn't try to manipulate God and get some leverage over him before he says what he wants. No, David just jumps right in at the very beginning and asks God to save him, to vindicate him, to hear his prayer, to give ear to his words. And then in verse 3, he tells him very bluntly, very transparently, why he needs God's help. Because wicked men have arisen against him and are seeking to put him to death. You see, friends, it's remarkable in this prayer, David doesn't hold anything back. He just puts it all on the table for God to hear and examine right up front. He tells him as honestly as he can what he needs and why he needs us, why he needs it. And and friends, David is teaching us something here about what it means to be a human person in relationship to God. He is teaching us that there is a, a vulnerability to prayer, a vulnerability to prayer that is essential to its nature. There's a vulnerability in prayer that is essential to its nature. Friends, true Christian prayer, mature Christian prayer, has this quality. It has a kind of simplicity, a a, a lack of guile, even an artlessness, a, a kind of defenselessness that is indicative of dependence. Even, we might say, childlikeness. That is what we are invited into in in true prayer to our Heavenly Father. Remember, this is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew, when he told them, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. That's, That's kind of a pagan way to pray. To think that I've got to sort of, you know, do something, some kind of thing that's going to get God to listen to me. And, and it's better if I, if I make my words elaborate and many, then maybe he'll listen. Jesus says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. Beloved, don't be afraid to simply ask God for what you actually need in your prayers. Like, even, I mean, yeah, you're going to ask for things sometimes that you don't actually need. But that, that's okay. That's part of the deal. That's part of what it means to grow in prayer. It's just name simply before the Lord what it is that you desire, what it is that you think that you need, what it is that you want him to do for you. He knows already what's in your heart. It's no use putting on some kind of pious mask over what it is that you actually desire. And prayer is the act of acknowledging 
our fundamental neediness, placing our desires into the hands of our God. And often it's as simple and as defenseless as saying things like, Save me, God. Vindicate me, O God. Hear me, O God. Give ear to my prayer, to the words of my mouth. Listen to me. Those are not complicated things that David asks for here. It's blunt, straightforward language. It's intimate language. And David is teaching us about prayer here. Teaching us about what it means to relate to our God. Then in verses 4 and 5, David shifts his language, right? Having told God what he needs and why he needs it, he then seems to address his own heart, his own soul, before working up to his next request, his next petition, which is that at the end of verse 5, that God will judge his enemies. In verses 4 and 5, David uh, prays in this way. He says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, then he addresses God again. He says, in your faithfulness, put an end to them. God is my helper, David cries. The Lord is the upholder of my life. You see, in many ways, prayer is not only a conversation with God. It is also a conversation with ourselves, a dialogue with our own heart. In prayer, friends, we exercise and examine our faith to remind us of what it is that we actually believe, not just what we believe about God in some abstract way, but what we believe about his goodness and presence toward us in the specific details of our lives. You see, this crisis in David's life, which came about in the Lord's providence, of course, the Ziphites did this because of God had ordained it to happen, it was an opportunity for David um, to find the strength of his faith, to grow in it to discover in this new situation that he had not yet previously experienced of betrayal and desperation who it was that he actually believed God to be. Calvin says that in this prayer, David commits himself to God in a new and thus far unprecedented way in his life experience. He commits himself to God in prayer because of the situation in a new way. And of course, this is certainly at least one of the reasons why God brings situations like David and what David found himself in into our lives as well. So that we can also commit ourselves into the hands of God in a new way, in a deeper way, in a way that requires more faith than we had previously thought we possessed. And friends, it's not only the difficult situation itself that brings about the work of stretching and expanding our faith. Prayer is an essential part as well. For it is in prayer, in the midst of that difficulty, that we learn to say with our lips and eventually embrace fully with our hearts. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Prayer is where we learn to say that in a new way. David concludes the psalm by pledging to God his thanksgiving for a deliverance that he has not yet experienced. It's fascinating how David ends this psalm. He says, with a free will offering, he's speaking to God again, I will sacrifice to you. 
I will give thanks to your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Remember that David writes this psalm not after he has been delivered from Saul and the Ziphites, but before. He writes it when he had heard they had gone up to Saul and that Saul was coming for him. Yes, God will rescue David out of the hand of Saul in this circumstance and in all the other future circumstances as well where Saul will threaten him. But when David writes this psalm, he's right in the middle of it. David's mention here of a free will offering is a particular sacrifice in the religious system of Israel. It wasn't a blood sacrifice to atone for sin. It was an offering that you presented to God as a way of publicly and formally giving thanks for a specific kindness or act of deliverance that God had worked in your life, perhaps after the birth of a child or after a recovery from an illness, you offered a free will offering in the sanctuary. But of course, typically a free will offering is something that you decide freely to do after you experience the deliverance or the blessing that you are giving thanks to God for. You see, when David writes this psalm and pledges before God this free will offering that he will give to him, he is exiled from the sanctuary. He can't go up to the tabernacle. He can't offer a sacrifice at this time. He's out in the wilderness and hiding. And he doesn't even presently know exactly how the Lord is going to do what he is planning to thank him for. He hasn't been saved yet. And yet David says confidently to the Lord with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name. Implicitly in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. O Yahweh, for it is good. In the midst of his trouble, David in his prayer anticipates his future thanksgiving by faith. And in verse 7, he is so confident of his coming deliverance by God's hand that he speaks about it in the past tense. Notice that in verse 7. He says, for he, that is God, or the Lord, the Lord has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Do you see what David is doing here? He believes so confidently that God will be faithful, that God will protect him from Saul's persecution and the betrayal of the Ziphites, that he speaks as though that deliverance and protection has already happened, as though it is in the past, not the future. And of, one, of course, that deliverance came. God, in the short term, indeed thwarted um, Saul's desire to kill David. And one day, Saul himself would die. He would be judged by God. He would be struck down by the hand of the Philistines. But none of those things had happened yet when David wrote these words. But here and now in prayer in Psalm 54, David reaches out into the future, into a future that he has not yet physically experienced. And he says, this is already true. My deliverance has already occurred. Friends, this is how Christian people talk. It's all over the scriptures. It's the same kind of logic that compelled Paul to write to the Colossians 
and say to them, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For you have died. Past tense. You've already died. And your life is hidden with God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Beloved, this is what prayer is. Psalm 54 gives us a beautiful picture of it. Prayer is the artless and defenseless requesting of God of those things that we actually need and desire. That's what prayer is. And more than that, prayer is also the ongoing dialogue with our own souls where we articulate and learn in every new challenge to believe afresh and anew that God is indeed the upholder of our lives. And prayer is finally the place where we, by faith, reach out into the eschatological future and learn to live and act and speak as though all of God's promises are already as real as if they had already happened. That they are ironclad and true. This, beloved, is the gift and the grace of prayer. This is why it is a means of grace. For in prayer we learn and embrace the great adventure of what it means to be a truly human person in relationship to the eternal and living God. What a gift it is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, indeed, this morning we give you thanks for your loving kindness for the way that you invite us into this profound act called prayer. I pray, Father, that you would give us much to meditate on as we reflect even this coming week on the words of Psalm 54 and the way that David teaches us to pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.